This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Luke, chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. We'll begin on page 863 in the Bibles in your rows, if you'd like to turn there and follow along as I read. Luke 7, verses 11 through 17. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died and was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and through all through the surrounding country. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh, it was September 1991 when Jerry and Linda Sitzer climbed into the car with their four children and Jerry's mother and just moved to Spokane, Washington, where Jerry was beginning a new job as professor of theology at Whitworth University. They've been doing volunteer work earlier in the day at a reservation of indigenous people, and now they're at the end of the day after volunteering, they were climbing back into their car to go home, and just in a few minutes into their drive, they were hit by a drunk driver going 85 miles an hour. He hit them so hard, the car catapulted over and cartwheeled over the Sitzer's car. And in an instant, Jerry lost his wife, his four-year-old daughter, and his mother. Now found himself as a single parent to three traumatized children. When asked to recall the accident, Dr. Sitzer said, it was viscerally excruciating. No language can even get there, he said. In a moment, three deaths, a confused and disorienting future, a paralyzing sense of hopelessness. Now, why start there this morning? I think that story feels a little closer to home, perhaps a little easier to understand than the one that Carissa just read to us in Luke 7. Viscerally excruciating, paralyzing hopelessness. We can see that in a story like the Sitzers. But, But Luke's original readers would have Heard it in the story that was just read to us as well. The woman that that Jesus meets outside the village gate, viscerally excruciating. And I'm not sure how you come into the room this morning, starting this new year, but I bet there are moments of hopelessness that you're facing or, or have faced. It's not that hard to recall. Or certainly you know somebody in your life who's in a spot like that. And I wonder, what do you think Jesus has to do with that hopelessness. As we start the new year, we're looking together at, at two chapters, Luke chapter 7 and Luke chapter 8. Last year, and over a course of a s- several sermon series, we got through and up to Luke chapter 6, and Ryan got us started last week in chapter 7. And, and through it all, we're trying to see Jesus 
in a fresh way this year, maybe for the first time for some of us this year. And so let me pray, and and then we'll, we'll get into our story a little bit this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord, your uh, word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And so as we reflect together on this story, we ask by the power of the Holy Spirit that we might see Jesus. Help us to see him, help us to know him, help us to respond to him. And it's in his name now that we pray. Amen. All right, so this is a story of life coming where there was death. Jesus raises this young man from the dead. And as the story ends in verse 16, it says, fear seized them all. Or literally, it says, fear grabbed them all. And it's that kind of fear that produces awe. And they glorify God, it says. And they yelled out, a great prophet has risen among us. Now, that's not all that Jesus is, a prophet. But they're not wrong to identify him like this. Because 500 years earlier, the prophet Elijah had raised a widow's only son. And in 1 Kings 17, it uses the same language to describe that incident, particularly at the end where he gives the son back to his mother. And then the prophet Elisha in 2 Kings 4 also raised the only son of a widow three miles from this very spot where Jesus does this miracle. A great prophet is among us, which is a big thing to say because there had been prophetic silence in Israel for 400 years. And now Jesus comes and they say, God has visited this place. In this sermon series, we're talking about how do we see Jesus? And we want to see him as an example. That is like, how are we supposed to live, right? If Jesus is the the, the picture of what a real human, somebody really having their life sold out for God is like. We want to grow up into Christ's likeness. We want to see Jesus as our example. We also want to see him as our savior. That is, when we read stories like this, it's not just imitating Jesus, but as we see Jesus doing things for this woman, as we see Jesus raising this young man, it gives us a window into how Jesus treats us. What Jesus has come to do for you and for me. So as we look at the story, be thinking about those things. But the first thing, just to observe as we're looking at Luke 7 here, is just notice that Jesus sees. Verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain. And just a little context, soon afterward, last week, Ryan gave us a little context. uh, The passage that he was talking about last week, Jesus comes to heal the centurion's servant. And it says in that part of the story, the servant was at the point of death. Or to use Miracle Max's language from the Princess Bride, he was mostly dead. (laughs) But not completely dead. And Jesus healed him. Then here in our text, soon afterwards, he comes to the town of Nain. And this time it's not mostly dead. This is it. This is the whole thing. Jesus is staring right down the throat of death. His disciples, Luke goes on, and a great crowd went with him. And of course there's a great crowd following Jesus. He had just given this revolutionary sermon in Luke 6 that we looked at back in September and October, sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain. He also had healed the sick. He cast out demons. He cleansed a leper. He healed a paralytic. Who doesn't want to be near Jesus when he's doing things like this? What is he going to do now? The crowd is wondering. Verse 12, as he drew near The gate of the town, behold. And that's Luke's stage direction, not to people in the story, but to us, to the readers. 
He's the narrator telling us, behold, right? We're supposed to be thinking, what's he going to do now? A man who had died was being carried out. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Consider the way Luke is painting this picture, right? Jesus has a crowd following behind him, entering into the city, and they encounter another crowd coming in the opposite direction out of the city. Jesus and his crowd, light and life coming one way, the other direction, decay and darkness coming the other way, healing, restoration, vitality colliding with corrosion, hopelessness, and death. Luke tells us she was a widow. Important detail in the story. Any parent who loses a child would be in the grips of terrible grief and pain. What we're supposed to remember here and notice, right, that uh, she had already lost her husband. And remember, this is the ancient world. There weren't many employment opportunities for her as a woman, so no social security either, no retirement, no pension, no annuity, no insurance, no uh, Medicare no future. And what's one of the first things the New Testament church sets out to do in the book of Acts, right? To take care of who? Widows. Because they were vulnerable. So two crowds of people passing each other at the city gate, verse 13, and when the Lord saw her. Jesus saw her. It's really easy to overlook how often the Bible emphasizes that Jesus sees people, really sees them, really notices them. Matthew chapter 9, Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and affliction. You can go ahead and pull that up. Yeah, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Mark 10 the story of the troubled young man, the so-called rich young ruler, and Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have, give to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, come follow me. John 19, Jesus is on the cross. It says, when Jesus saw his mother, saw his mother, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Jesus saw their need and provided for them both in each other. In the Old Testament, when Hagar is cast out, she's on the run, she's destitute, she's out of hope, she calls out to God. What does she call him? She says, you are the God of seeing. And when Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son, in Luke chapter 15, remember Jesus has given us a picture of who God is. What is God like? Well, the son has run off in the story. He squandered everything. Eventually, he decides to come back after he's broken his father's heart. And Jesus says, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Jesus sees this woman in her pain. God sees people in their pain. Hagar says, you are the God of seeing. God sees you. Our calling as God's people is to see other people as well. Now, what prevents us from that? You can probably, as many people as there are in the room probably could answer that in some slightly different way, but I bet there's a few commonalities. What are the things that keep us from seeing other people? One thing for sure would be 
selfishness, right? That keeps us from seeing others. Martin Luther said, the essence of sin, the Latin phrase is homo incurvatus in se. That is man curved in upon himself. Rather than loving God and loving our neighbors, we are turned in on ourselves, Luther says. And of course, right, when that's the case, you can't see others if we're hyper-focused on our needs, on our wants, on our desires. Selfishness gets in the way of seeing others. Busyness certainly is an obstacle to seeing others as well. Uh, Matthew Henry comments that this story falls on the heels of the healing of the centurion's servant. And he says, uh, you can click one more there, I think we have that quote. Jesus was doing good every day, and he never complained that he lost a day. It's a good little observation. Jesus was doing good every day, and he never complained that he lost a day. That is, when you're serving others, when you're interrupted by somebody's needs, when you have to drop what you're doing and go help somebody else out, you're not losing a day. Rather, you're leaning into the purpose for which you were made. But in order for that to be true, right, you have to live at a pace where you can be interrupted, where you can stop, where you can see, you can stop and look. And uh, I'll just be honest, that's a weakness of mine. Right? I'm a planner. I have a lot on my plate. And my way of dealing with the stress and the anxiety of a million things to do is to plan not just every hour of the day, but every hour of the week. Right? I tend to do that. That's what, how I tend to deal with anxiety is I Google Calendar and I plan out pretty much every hour of my entire week. But I'm starting to rethink this practice a little bit because if, if every hour of the day, every hour of the week is accounted for, what happens when you're interrupted in those moments, right? If an interruption comes, you start to think, well, first of all, you're starting to look at your watch, right? But you're also starting to think about, I had other things I'm supposed to be getting done during this time. You start to, to, to get distracted. You start to get anxious. Maybe you're feeling resentment. Certainly, you're not seeing the person who's in front of you. I've got some room to grow in that respect. Maybe you do too. You know, a third thing that could be an obstacle to seeing others would be screens, right? Our addiction to screens. It's impossible to see others when our eyes are glued to a screen. 2007 was when uh, Apple introduced the iPhone. And uh, that means there are kids who are turning 16 this year who have been competing with their parents' phone for their gaze, their parents' gaze, for all of their lives. Never in the history of the world has it been so hard for children to get their parents' eyes. And we don't know what the impact of what this will be, but it'd be foolish to think that there wasn't going to be some kind of impact, right? 62% of people check their phone within the first hour of the morning. Many of us do it before our feet hit the floor. Uh, many of us go to bed, and the last thing we see is a screen. On average, children spend five hours using an electronic device on a typical weekday. 82% of teens sleep with their phone next to them, standing in line on our phones, eating in college cafeteria, or looking at screens. Often in the middle of conversations, we stare at screens. Now listen, I'm not a Luddite. I have a phone. Uh, I like technology. But let's not paper over the dangers and the drawbacks either. Unmitigated, unintentional use of screens prevents us from seeing others. We have a God who sees and a God who helps us to see. And so maybe we're 
application this morning is to make your prayer here at the start of the year. Lord, would you help me to see the people around me? Lord, I'm grateful that you see me. So first, Jesus sees. Secondly, just notice Jesus feels. Verse 13, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Now what's amazing, I think, is that you know, Jesus raises someone from the dead in this story. And yet, this miracle is more remembered for Jesus' compassion. That's how people tend to remember this story. And that's the way that Luke writes it. That's the thing that jumps off the page for us here in Luke's telling, is that Jesus has compassion for this widow. And compassion means to suffer with someone. To feel deeply, to be attentive and concerned. The word passion, right? Uh, you know that we have sometimes have passion plays around uh, Good Friday or Easter Sunday, right? About the suffering of Jesus. Well, compassion is the willingness to suffer with someone else. Your heart goes out to them. You enter into their pain. We already mentioned all those times the Bible speaks about Jesus seeing people, but also let's remember that that seeing leads to feeling. When Jesus saw the crowds like sheep without a shepherd, he had compassion on them. Matthew chapter 9. Mark 1. Jesus sees a leper and he has pity on him. He's moved with compassion. He stretches out his hand. He touches him. You don't touch lepers. Jesus' compassion moves him toward the person in pain. And another parable that Jesus tells, the Good Samaritan tells the story about a man beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. Others pass by on the other side. Others avoid him. I want to get involved, but Jesus says the Samaritan man, when he saw him, he had compassion. Jesus feels compassion. We were asking at the start, right, what does Jesus have to do with our hopelessness? At the very least, at the very least, we can say this, your Savior does not relate to any hopelessness in your life with disinterested, sterile, uncaring heartlessness. Jesus is deeply moved with compassion. Uh, Phil Riken, president of Wheaton College, said this. He said, sadly, there are some people, including some Christians, who would rather not come anywhere close to people who are grieving or hurt in other ways. Sometimes they're not sure what to say or they are preoccupied with their own problems or they're embarrassed by the untamed emotions of someone deep in pain. But Jesus cares. The word Luke uses to describe his response is a word of passionate feeling, an intense word for a gut response of loving sympathy for someone else's pain. Joe Novenson Pastor of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, he said, no preacher has ever or will ever overestimate the compassion of Jesus Christ. Do you feel for others in the way that Jesus does? Are you moved with compassion? Do you move toward people in their pain? Listen, I'm not talking about sentimentalism here, right? Jesus, Jesus was a person of truth. He spoke the truth. Tough-minded person. But being a person of truth and a person of compassion are not dichotomous. You don't have to choose one or the other. You can have a discerning mind and a big heart. Jesus was full of grace and truth. And he calls us to follow him in that. Uh, Will Williman uh, has a memoir 
uh, about his, and he, in the memoir, he, he tells about his first experience of church. Will uh, grew up in a very poor community in Greenville, South Carolina, uh, single mom, raising him alone. His dad had taken off when he was really young. And so his mom was working, you know, all kinds of hours, uh, just trying to put food on the table, just trying to take care of her son. And uh, this is the early 20th century, so not a lot of after-school programs, not a lot of uh, things going on in the community, but there was a United Methodist Church just down the street, and it was one of the only places in town that had stuff going on most of the days of the week that kids could go to, and so she, she dropped him off there as often as she could, and in particular, he has this memory of being 10 years old, and he was enrolled in a Thursday afternoon uh, membership course for children. And they all went through the class together. All the kids went through the class together. And the idea was then on Palm Sunday, they would join the church. That's the way they did their membership. And so just a few weeks out before Palm Sunday, on one of the normal Thursday classes, they were going to take a group picture. And that group picture would be on the cover of the bulletin for Palm Sunday. And uh, so 10-year-old Will showed up just like he normally would for the class. But he wasn't dressed right. And the woman who was leading the class just lit into him. Right? He wasn't dressed as the other boys were. He wasn't wearing a tie. She had told him to wear a tie. This is going on the bulletin. She says, how could you do this? I told you to dress in a certain way. You weren't listening. You can't do anything right. And he just took off, tears in his eyes, in absolute shame. Because it's hard to tell somebody you don't have a dad. It's hard to tell somebody you don't have a tie. It's hard to tell somebody even if you had a tie, you wouldn't have any idea how to tie it. So he's crying, he's leaving the church, and he bumps into the pastor who's on his way in. He's going to be there for the picture as well. Eventually, the pastor gets out of him what's wrong, and they walk together back into the room, and the pastor gets in there, and he says, boys, you look great, but it's Thursday. Nobody wears ties on Thursday, and he takes his tie off and gets the other boys to take their ties off, and the pastor says, that's better. Now we're ready for the picture. And Will Willman said, of that moment, he said, you know, that man had compassion on me. He covered my shame. To that fatherless, humiliated little boy, the pastor was Jesus to me in that moment. To be like Christ is to be drawn to people who suffer, to have an instinctive compassion for their sorrows. And so make it your prayer to grow up into Christ's likeness, to be moved with compassion for others. Jesus sees, Jesus feels, and then finally we see here, Jesus acts. Right? He says to the woman, do not weep. Now don't hear Jesus condemning tears in this moment. We know that Jesus weeps his own tears. We know he consoles those who are full of sorrow. He's not condemning tears. But do you know what he is doing in this moment? Jesus is pulling Revelation 21.4 into this moment. Revelation 21.4 says that in the kingdom of God, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away. That is, one day in the kingdom of God, Jesus will wipe away every tear. He will have dealt with whatever hurts us most. And for this woman, in this moment, right then, Jesus is yanking the future into the present. Verse 14, then he came up and he touched the funeral buyer and the bearers stood still. They stood still because this was not done. The religiously observant would not touch a body. They wouldn't even get near a body. Numbers 19 says that if you got even close to a dead body, it's an automatic quarantine, right? Unclean. 
Jesus touches the body. And again, Luke is painting this picture for us. Jesus is touching what we can't. Jesus is stopping what we can't, death. He's giving what we can't, life. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. J.C. Ryle says, the prince of peace is stronger than the king of terrors. And that though death, the last enemy, is mighty, he is not so mighty as the sinner's friend. Verse 15, and the dead man sat up and began to speak. It's been encouraging reports coming from uh, UC this week from the Buffalo Bills as well. You know, DeMar Hamlin, I think you probably all have heard, the Buffalo Bills player who suffered a life-threatening cardiac episode in the Bengals game this past week. But the encouraging news over the last few days, vitals are improving, almost miraculously so. But the, the one that gave the most confidence, the one that gave everybody the most joy, it seemed, was on Thursday when the Buffalo Bills said that he was able to sit up and, and speak to his friends and his family. In our story, the dead man sat up and began to speak. And then it says, and Jesus gave him to his mother. I love that little line. Jesus gave him to his mother, just like Elijah had done, just like Elisha had done when they raised widows, sons, just like Jesus would do with John and his own mother Mary while on the cross. There's probably a whole other sermon in there. And when Jesus gives life, he does so that we might rightly love the people we are with. But that's another sermon, I guess. Just quick application here, right? Thinking about Jesus as our example, someone to imitate. We're in the new year, right? Great time to take stock of things. We're all doing our little diagnostics. How are we doing? How can we grow? Making resolutions. And again, thinking about becoming like Jesus, it's worth including these considerations, these questions. Do I see the people around me? Am I moved with compassion when I do see them? And is it leading me to action? Now, probably you're not going to do anything as dramatic as raise the dead. I feel pretty confident in saying that. There are plenty of actions you can take to move toward people this year. If you're looking to serve in our city, I mean, we're connected to City Gospel Mission, City Link Center, Lydia's House here in Norwood, Wiz Kids in Norwood School, ESOL here on our own buildings on Monday night. There is just a few of the ways that you can move toward people in serving others. But you probably in your own spheres, in your neighborhood, in your family, amongst your friends, you know somebody who's struggling. How can you pray for them this year? How can you move toward them this year? One of the easiest ways I know to keep your eyes open to need is to intentionally journal the question, what did I see today? Or who did I see? And how is God calling me to respond in light of that? Jesus is our example we want to grow up into Christ-likeness as we see, feel, and act. But don't stop there. Because Jesus is also our Savior. Which means you need to know that Jesus sees you. In the midst of the crowds, He sees you in your need. Never stops to amaze me. It can be a noisy crowd of people, right? And usually a mom, guys sometimes can do this, but usually a mom, you know, if they hear a cry, they can, you know, sort of tilt, and they're like, yep, that's mine, you know. There's that kind of attentiveness. Well, Jesus has that. He sees you in the midst of your need. And he feels compassion. He sympathizes with you in a way that no one in this room comes close to. I mean, just read the scriptures. 
And see all the ways that he's not just feeling sympathy in general, but for particular people. Charles Spurgeon says that the Bible is swarming with personal pronouns. I love that phrase. The Bible is swarming with personal pronouns, meaning that Jesus isn't feeling compassion for humankind generally, but for actual people specifically. And that means he is feeling compassion specifically for you as he sees you. And listen, he also acts. He has acted on your behalf. Jesus didn't just touch the funeral buyer for you, right? He actually got nailed to it, to the cross. He got on it to keep you off it. He went to the cross to pay for your sins so that you could be reconciled to God, so that you could enter into the kingdom of God where one day every tear will be wiped away. Will you put your trust in Jesus? He has moved towards you in his love. So let's just take a moment of reflection before we come to the Lord's Supper, which we'll do. But just take a moment of silence and pray and and ask this morning how God wants you to be more like Christ this year. Is there a way that he's calling you to imitate him? But also ask him to show you more of how he has loved you and what Jesus has done for you. Again, let's just take a moment and be quiet together and think about those things. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.